0: There's a a man with a gun over there (laughs) telling me I got to beware. It's time we stop, children. What's What's that sound? sound? Everybody look what's what's going going down?
1: down.
0: When I uh uh, normally in my show, my uh, entrance. Have you ever heard of a band called the All Saved Freak Band? Uh-huh. Uh, have you ever heard of them? No. Nope. They were these uh, hippies back in the sixties. They were all. One of them was like a legit rock and roll guy, and he joined up. A, they were kind of a cultish group in Kent, Ohio. Uh-huh. So even one of the men who was leading the Kent Revolt, uh, where there's a shooting yeah. and and at Kent State University, he was actually converted through them and kind of joined their little movement. And a few years ago, I came across a website called One wayorg it's kind of a history of the Jesus movement, and so they have a handful of like little coffee shops. They followed like a Dwayne Peterson, um, who's the guy that took the cross and started walking yeah. around the country. Do you remember who that guy was? Oh, yeah.
1: no, I, that wasn't Dwayne Peterson. I know, know the guy. I met him. He was I was before I was a believer. I was walking, I was driving in the desert in Arizona, uh, like a million miles from everywhere, and here's this guy with this huge cross <laughs> walking across the desert, and I just I pulled over to the side of the road and I offered him some some food to eat and stuff like that and uh and we talked about what he was doing
0: that's awesome so here we are in the studio with bill garraway i met bill maybe three years ago now and so i was converted in 1993 one of the people that interested me right off the bat was keith green who is a tail end of the jesus movement uh he may have been outside of it because i think he was converted like in 1978 um but entranceway into that, and I started like listen to the second chapter of Acts, and then I started reading about the revival, and Lonnie Frisbee, and all these people, and then lo and behold, I meet Bill Garraway in Moscow, Idaho, who actually has one of the most fascinating testimonies, and I haven't actually heard the whole thing, we've had a few conversations along the way, I know he's working on a book, but I was in uh, Bozeman, Montana, I was passing through Bozeman, Montana about six weeks ago, and there was a man there, I believe his name was Jim, he wouldn't give me his last name, and he looked mildly homeless, um, but he was converted outside of Eureka, California at some remember, Lighthouse Ranch. Lighthouse Ranch. And so when I got back here and talked to you about Lighthouse Ranch, I think we met up in uh, South Dakota actually. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. I was going to South Dakota for the rally. And uh you and I I, I mentioned uh yeah, Lighthouse Ranch and then I was like, "All right, we got to sit down and talk about your testimony and stuff like that." So, here we are with Bill garraway and we're going to largely just let him tell his testimony and his story and I'll ask some questions along the way. So, if you want to start from the beginning of you being a little boy a a bouncing baby boy coming out of your mother's womb. Uh, Where was this and what were you
1: doing? I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Were you really? Yeah. Okay. In Bensonhurst, the Jewish community. Born in Israel-Zion Hospital. All right. Now I got to interrupt you. Are you Jewish? Yeah. My parents were were Jewish, although uh, not Orthodox at all. Okay. Although I had some members of the family that were very Orthodox, but uh, my grandfather was a communist. He got fired in the 1920s he was working for dupont wow and they had a red scare in the 1920s and and he was an outspoken communist and they got rid of him then but uh and my father was uh nominally communist he was a writer he he worked he wrote for the brooklyn eagle okay and he also wrote for the daily worker under a yep. pseudonym wow. and uh so but he got fed up with the daily worker he was a sports writer in fact. He was interviewing Jackie Robinson back when he was in the playing in the Negro Leagues, and uh, but he he covered the Joe Lewis Jack Dempsey flight fight, and they made it look like uh, Jack Dempsey was. Uh, uh, Fighting for the the communism, uh-huh, the communism, uh-huh. they edited his whole story, and he <laughs> he said, "Oh no, <laughs> this the, is this is it." He he quit the Daily Worker at that time. Uh, uh, uh,
0: so, am I allowed to ask how old you are? Sure. Okay, because my parents, uh, my 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 father, I believe, was either born in forty one or forty two. You roughly forty four, I you born. In. Okay, because he went to Erasmus Hall High School, mm-hmm. and so I, I don't know where you uh, he was living. Uh, it wasn't Park Slope. It was one neighborhood over from Park Slope. I can't remember where it was. And yeah. then I, I spent five years in Park Slope from 2005. to Borough Park, maybe? I think it's Borough Park, yeah.
1: yeah. I, I was in Bensonhurst. Okay. Which was, my school was 99% Jewish. Okay.
0: Yeah, because a lot of their friends were Jewish. So, like, he was – I think he graduated with Neil Diamond. Or, no, Barbara Streisand. Neil Diamond was a little bit older than he was. He, he graduated yeah, with Barbara I, Streisand.
1: If I would have stayed I, – I moved to California when I was 12. Okay. If I would have stayed in – Brooklyn, i would have gone to lafayette high which that was sandy Kofax school so. okay all right great
0: <laughs> so you're you're born um in a um not not really well a, a very marginally jewish family at least uh-huh. somewhat culturally jewish family um some red going on in the family some communist ties going on in the family and then you're 12 years old you guys pack up go out to california yep. where'd you guys end up out there
1: uh, in los angeles we uh my mother had a brother in la and we pulled into Los Angeles, and it was, this is pre-smog days, in you know, 1954 or something like that, in '55, and it was uh, just a brilliant sunny day. You could see all the hills around LA, and my mother thought this was heaven on earth. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think a lot of people did back she, in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, That's she
1: it. she called her brother. She had a brother remaining in New York, and she said, "Pack up our stuff, send it here. We're <laughs> come going. We're, on, come on, we're out. not coming. We're not coming back."
0: Uh, and when you guys landed in Los Angeles, what what neighborhood or city? Uh, in Hollywood. And oh, you're in Hollywood. Okay, because yeah. I actually I lived right off of uh, Sunset and La Brea. For well, a period, I know, I know it well. Yeah, so so i sp- I've, I spent a handful of time there. Which uh, they've cleaned it up a little bit. They've even cleaned up Sunset quite a bit, um, but it, you still have uh, you know a lot of drugs and stuff like that in that area. And so, twelve years old, did you go to Hollywood High School?
1: Oh no no no! I moved. We actually we moved to San Diego for a, a little bit. My grandparents were there, and then my dad got a job in Burbank, so we moved into the San Fernando Valley to Pacoima. Okay, yeah, and uh, I went to Pacoima Junior High. And then San Fernando, Ohio. Bacoima had a plane crash there. It was kind of famous. Okay. That way you're not quite old enough to remember <laughs> yeah, that. I don't remember I don't <laughs> Before remember, you were like born. A, for, for, <laughs> before, yeah, as of right now, yeah, before I was born, I don't remember that one. But a, a, a jet crashed in our gym field. Oh, my goodness. And I watched it come down. I was outside in a drafting class holding up a blueprint to the sun, and I saw this plane come down, it crashed, and it killed. Eight kids from my homeroom class. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it, it killed about. I think it was fifteen people total. And how old
0: were you at this point?
1: In the seventh grade.
0: Wow. So you're thirteen years old. Yeah, something that? like that. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah that, that, that was a trauma. So yeah, that's a that's yeah that's an, that's a really insane. That's even like part of your the interesting thing with you. Um, have you ever seen the movie Forrest Gump? Where he's oh, all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where he's always at the world's most interesting events, and he's just kind of kind of there. You're you're I've been, little, I've been
1: accused of that. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're, <a> little, <laughs> and you're like, are all these true? Are these true stories? <laughs> or you making? Because yeah, it's always fascinating the places where you are and everything else. So all right, so 13 years old, um roughly that age, seventh grade, and then uh, you graduate from high school. There, where'd you go to college?
1: uh I went to Pepperdine. I had a full scholarship okay. to Pepperdine for mm-hmm. journalism. Okay. And I didn't even know it was a Christian college before I went there. It was a Church of Christ mm-hmm. school. In, uh,
0: beautiful area in Malibu. Oh,
1: no, no, no. This was when it was in Watts. Oh. It was pre-Malibu <laughs> okay, days. Okay,
0: pre-Malibu. Okay, I, 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 I was, I was the, a beautiful area. I was
1: the editor of the Pepperdine newspaper, and I broke the story. We were donated to land in Malibu, and I broke that story. And oh. It was, it was still a number of years after that that they built a campus and – Moved out there. Wow. But the Pepperdine was in downtown LA, in South LA, right where the Watts riots were.
0: Yeah, that's that's because, yeah, I only know Pepperdine as being like this really beautiful campus in Malibu. You kinda have the Pacific Ocean right there. It really is one of the most has to be one of the most scenic oh, yes. campuses in the country at this point. Spot. But back in the day it was in Watts where you have riots and everything else. Yeah. So fascinating.
1: And did you graduate from college? Yeah, then I, I after two years of Pepperdine, I decided I'd go to UCLA and I transferred to UCLA but a few weeks before school was to start, I saw an ad in the newspaper a 35 day boat trip from LA to Bremenhaven, Germany, with stops in Acapulco, Panama, Jamaica, the Azores, Portugal, Southampton, La Harve, and, and Bremenhaven. And I decided I'd get on the boat. So <laughs> my parents lent me the money to buy the ticket, oh, $250 for a 35 day <laughs> boat trip. To, and it was actually the University of Seven Seas, okay. and they didn't have enough students, so they took on passengers to kind of uh, supplement the costs of the trip. And so you were roughly 20 at this point. Yeah, I was 20.
0: What, exactly. Were you starting to engage in the hippie, uh, hippie culture at this point, or not yet?
1: Okay. I, I, well, that's where a lot of it a lot of it happened. Okay. I mean, our first stop was Acapulco, mm-hmm. and uh, there were a bunch of it was crazy. It was a last-minute trip, so I had a a week to get ready. I bought the ticket and a week to get on the boat, and that's how most people were. So there was a bunch of soldiers of fortune. that were going down to Rhodesia in the time, and they were on the boat, and then there were a bunch of surfers that they had the uh, famous surfing movie – about these surfers. They followed them all around the world. Hmm. I, f- I forget what the name of it is. It wasn't Frank Avalon, Frankie Avalon.
0: Frankie Avalon no 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 no. Oh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. This is a surf documentary. A religious, religious. Noel
1: Brown was the 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 director of it. Okay. He, he's a kind of famous surfer. And a couple of guys that were going to meet up with that crew. And uh, all kinds of strange people. And the, the, So these soldiers of fortune go to Acapulco and pick up some Acapulco. Paradise, Weed, uh-huh. yeah. Acapulco gold, and then they stopped in Panama and they got Panama red and then they stopped in the Azores and they got more more stuff than all these the passengers assigned on in the last minute they were just getting stoned and wandering around the trip the boat the whole time uh very bizarre
0: <laughs> and so that would have been that would have been a little bit of your entrance into yeah that's into-
1: that's when I first started becoming aware of of drugs okay and then i we got off the boat, it was in February, and I looked at the weather charts, and it was below zero, 10 below zero in Bremenhaven, and we got off the boat in, in uh, Lisbon, and it, the weather was just perfect. It was beautiful, the Portuguese people were really nice, and I decided I'm getting off here. <laughs> he jumped ship. They jumped they, they They gave me a $35 discount for getting <laughs> off early, it was incredible, In uh I hitchhiked from there down to Gibraltar, and across Gibraltar to Ceuta, Spanish Morocco, and then over to Tangiers. And the cultural difference in Tangiers was dramatic. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was looking to—is
0: Tangiers? If I'm looking at Africa, is it? It's in Morocco. Oh, it is in Morocco. Yeah, it's very the
1: very northwestern tip of Morocco. Okay. And uh, yeah, I was in the Casbah in Tangiers. Uh In So I decided, okay, I'm going to, instead of going through Europe, which was still cold, I'm going to go across North Africa and come to Europe from that side. Okay. So uh, I had to get, pick up my stuff. I left a lot of my stuff on the boat with the University of Seven Seas kids. And so I went to Barcelona, where they were spending the school year, and picked up my stuff, and then came back down to tangiers and started hitchhiking across the country
0: wow and was any of that like were you on a spiritual journey at that point or no were you
1: just kind of- no no i was total pagan what? okay uh he you know hedonist atheist okay <laughs> were you were you a, were you a marxist or anything like that at the time i was you- pretty marxist okay. I, actually one of the fir- big changes it was, it was kind of it took me in the wrong direction but it actually was a positive change in my life was i went to uh Algiers through, Algiers I went from Tangiers down to southern Morocco and Marrakesh and Casablanca, Rabat, and then I came up through Fez and then to the Algerian coast, which is incredibly beautiful. And then the day I pulled into Tangiers, they had a revolution there, and Ben Bella took over the government, and there were tanks in the street.
0: Was it like a Marxist revolution? Uh, was I, it an Islamic
1: revolution? What? Well, he, he was pretty Marxist, but okay. it, it wasn't an Islamic revolution. But uh, so there were tanks in all the corners, soldiers walking around with guns, and I went to the youth hostel in Algiers, and they were having every four years they have a communist youth festival, <laughs> and they're, they're all over the world, and that's where it was going to be. So it was fully young people, and this journalist from a the kind of leading news magazine in Indonesia, and it was very is a very polished magazine like a Time or Newsweek type of glossy magazine. And he was very sharp, and he wanted to hear from American young, American young people what, what we thought about what was going on in the world. And he started asking me questions about Vietnam, and I had n- no clue at all in uh, just what I was listen hearing and on this. So um, what year is this again, if you don't mind me asking? This is 65. Okay, okay. And just what I was hearing on the TV and reading the newspapers, which was... And he started questioning me about it. Well, you know, do you really know what's happening there? And I had no clue. Mm-hmm. And he started educating me. And he really knew. He's very, very sharp, and he's very gracious. And I spent most of all the other kids left because of the revolution. They shut the World Youth Festival down. But I probably spent four or five days with him oh, wow. in Algiers. And he was telling me what the whole history of Vietnam and the, the French. Uh, fighting there, and and then what America was starting to do, and uh, the rest of my trip, I spent another nine months going across North Africa and into Europe, I'd stop at schools all over, and I'd talk to the students, and they all knew everything, hmm. and, and I got more and more educated, and then when I got back to the U.S., you know, almost a year later, I started looking in the newspapers in the u.s and going to the library and doing the research and everything he told me was true wow i mean the facts lined up and, and was a
0: journalist uh was he a mart was it like american imperialism what did he have like a certain angle the thing no he, he was
1: a very straight journalist he okay. a, a very gracious with me I, if if i would have been interviewing him i would have been <laughs> you stupid idiot <laughs> what's wrong with you uh-huh. and uh, but he was he was just really neat Neat guy. I mean, he was definitely, uh, I think, more left-leaning, but it it didn't interfere with his communication with me. And uh, when I first arrived in L.A., uh, and I was going to go to UCLA, they were having uh, Martin Luther King did his first anti-war rally in L.A. and So I went on that, and I, I marched on that with him. And I started getting into fights with family and other people about what I was what I was doing, <laughs> which has never, never been a problem. <laughs> uh, anyway, that, and that's that's when I first got involved in the whole anti-war movement. From that time, and then, uh, well, I'll skip. There's a lot, lots of stuff happened in that the, that trip. I, had some lot of providential events, but
0: I'll, I'll skip through that. Can you give us like one good one, one? Good providential event in the in the process.
1: Well, just there's one guy. He was a student at another school in the San Fernando Valley, where I was, and before the week before I was leaving, I met him at a party, and he goes, "Well, I'm going to Europe too," and he was flying into to Germany, and. Uh, I go, I'll see you in Europe, <laughs> and then when I'm in this hotel in the Kasbah in the old city of Tangiers, I hear an American voice on the roof, and I go upstairs in this sky, <laughs> and he told me he landed, and it was so cold in Germany. he decided oh, well. to go south <laughs> just had like the same yeah you the had, same so. reason i was I was there.
0: And were there a lot of Americans in North Africa at that time? No, like, no, yeah. okay. very
1: very few. Actually, It, it was kind of neat because wherever I'd go, I'd be, I, you know, I was a young American student mm-hmm. and they, people take me in their house and they hadn't seen him, you know. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so it was, that was a good time. But then I ran into him again and uh, he was going into Spain right after that and he went back to Europe. And so I ran into him in a number of places in Spain, which in Madrid, which is a humongous city. They just bump into them on in the street. It was pretty amazing. I bumped into the street there in Granada and Alhambra <laughs> and then in in Barcelona. And then at, I'm around – I'm in Greece after I, I went all across North Africa and the Middle East, and, you know, I had relatives living in Israel. I stopped and visited them when I was in Israel. And, uh, well, that was interesting. Just before I left too, I, was, I had a girlfriend that uh, – in the San Fernando Valley there. And her father was a rabbi and she was a twin. And, uh, they said, Oh, we've got good friends in Israel. Visit them when you get there. So they gave me their friends, uh, contact information. And she knitted, knitted me a bunch of yarmulkes to
0: <laughs> keep and, us. And was up. the world just more open back then? Like you're, you're traveling around strangers or bring you in were, were people just more open or is that? Well, it's kind nature?
1: of, I can, I'll, 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 I'll tell that okay. one little story because okay. the yarmulke is uh, – anyway, I was in Syria before I, – I went to Egypt and then uh, I flew to Damascus and I was wandering around Damascus and this guy met me on the street huh. and he, he asked me to go home with him. So <laughs> I, I go home with him and he's got five kids and he had a, a son, one of his youngest sons, I think might, might have been 12 years old. At that time, he showed me all these pictures of him with broomsticks, which he was using as a rifle, and he was doing uh, marching, preparing to push the Jews into the sea. Oh, wow. And that, you know, that's what, that was his goal. And he's a, it turned out he's Palestinian. And uh, they had this Israeli spy made friends with Syrian government officials, and they had... Uh, Syria was on the Golan Heights, and they were firing rockets into Israel and stuff like that. And the Israelis took them out big time. And he, this guy, the Israeli spy, told him, "Well, you ought to. That all the the Syrians were complaining it's so hot on the Golan Heights, you know, and they were just suffocating from the heat. He just why don't you plant trees?" So they planted trees, and the Israelis used the trees to <laughs> to hone in on their targets. Wow! And uh, so they found they found out he was a spy, and they hung him in the park right across the street from where I was living.
0: Oh, wow! Yeah, it was
1: right while I was there, it was, that was a pretty hairy experience. And while I was there, I had these yarmulkes. And in did my, they know
0: you were ju- Yeah. Did they... No, they don't. Oh, no, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't know I So I t- I had put the yarmulkes in the very bottom of my backpack. You know, I'd, I'd, mm-hmm. they couldn't see those, <laughs> and. Uh, so when we got to, when I, uh, this is still when uh, uh, Jerusalem was divided in half, and uh, one side was Israeli, one side Jordanian, and I, I was in Jordan, and staying on the Mount of Olives, and uh, the day I decided to come into Israel, I took out my amicus from my pack and put put one in my pocket. I got my passport stamp to get out of Jordan and I'm walking in Israel I put my <laughs> yarmulke on my head and walk in Israel and then I went and visited they were her family was on the boat the exodus when they were escaping Europe and uh, they were in Italy and the exodus was going you know to Israel take people to Israel and I read the book by Leon Uris about the exodus on my way over want- to to Europe and so I, that was a fresh story to me. Mm-hmm. And all their friends that were in Israel were on the boat, the Exodus. So I went to, you know, I went to their uh, kibbutz. They all lived, moved to a kibbutz in northern Israel, right by the Lebanese what's a, what's border. A, what's a kibbutz? A kibbutz is a, a community. Okay. And uh, a lot of Israel Israelis moved to the kibbutz when they first came there, and the, most of the kibbutz had special Specialties. This was an agricultural kibbutz, and it was really a very profitable place. They did a really good job with their agriculture, and they marketed all their agriculture. And you know, it was a, it was a first-class place. And I got to experience the kibbutz then. And I was uh, that family. They thought very well of that family. They got a, the captain to come to them before the Exodus took off and warned them because uh, her mother was pregnant with twins. They said, It might be, you might have trouble. You better get, you know, get off. And they found them passage on a boat to the U.S. So they went to the oh, U.S., wow. and her father became a rabbi of a big synagogue in Los Angeles. And uh, so that I was like, old uh, family, family. They really welcomed me yeah. well there. It was fantastic. And uh, so what was my other story there? I, the
0: um yeah I, uh, yeah you you started telling one and you went to the yeah the, then I got off one um you're well you're telling the, the main oh, Johnny the, yeah yeah you're bumping so I, I, so
1: I go from Israel to Greece to Athens and then I decided to go to Mykonos which is an island in the Mediterranean there and I go to Mykonos and I find these English speaking kids on the backside of the island most of them were South Africa but Rhodesia there's some from Rhodesia and. uh and they had a little community that they started started back there, and they're living on the beach, and and I'm sitting there with, with them, and I'm looking way down the beach, and here's a couple of guys walking down the beach, and one of them's got a surfer bathing suit on. I go, oh, no, there's, here's some Americans, and the guy gets closer. It's my friend Johnny again. I uh, bumped into him again, and then after that, I ended up in Istanbul, and I met him again in Istanbul. Oh, my goodness. And then I, I went to
0: was – he, was, he wasn't a, an American spy or anything like that no, you. He no. wasn't suspicious of was your activities? Ama-
1: it was amazing. And then I went to Austria and uh, I wanted to go. They had Aida, the opera, playing there in the opera house, and I wanted to go see it. So I go there. I meet him, and it turns out he went there to buy tickets, but he was standing in the line, and they fitted them for a helmet, and he was an extra – that was the, the line for the extras, so he was in the play. Not, not, only he, not only did he get to see it, he was in the play. And then I him uh, again in Paris, and his girlfriend was a twin, and she was over there with her twin sister for the summer. This, this, by then it was summer. And uh, so I got hung out with him and his, his girlfriend and his twin sister. And were they believers or anything? Like, no, no, yeah. no, they oh. weren't at all. Okay. But it, it was amazing. I saw this guy. I I met him all over Europe. Never planned on meeting him, never said where we were going or anything. And just we kept bumping into each other. It was, that was it was pretty phenomenal. And
0: how long did you keep in touch with Johnny? I I
1: still still in touch, touch with him actually. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. He got he got married to married to a young lady in a very kind of orthodox Jewish wedding and he's very talented and he started actually you, you know the Renaissance fairs. You ever run into those? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, he was a vendor at one of the Renaissance fairs. In fact, mo- the er- very early ones. He okay. knew the people that owned it, that started them, and uh, and I would work in his booth. He had half a cantaloupe with honey ice cream inside of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so I went to a lot of the early Renaissance fairs in both the L.A. area up in the Bay Area. Okay. And uh, working in his booth, and then he started the. Uh, Couple of restaurants in the Berkeley area; they're still going. Oh, wow, big time! Yeah,
0: and and so you, you're bumping into Johnny everywhere, and then uh, you're kind of did you get settled back into Los Angeles when you returned to the state? Yeah, then
1: I got settled into Los Angeles, and then in, uh, in that that spring, hmm. I think it was the following March, they had a big teach-in, and that, this is something that I've thought about since then about. Uh, we ought to do this as Christians. In fact, what your campus ministry maybe uh-huh. ought to do is they brought in some of the best anti-war speakers from all of the United States in, in the biggest auditorium at UCLA. And they, you know, probably two, 3,000 students in there. And they just preached their message, their anti-war message. And I heard this guy, David McReynolds, who was the head of the War Resisters League, and uh and were a lot of these people roughly your age? Were they older? Or no, the most of them were older than me. Okay. But and uh and then they had Pete like Pete Seeger, do you remember Pete oh, yeah. Seeger? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah, I love he, Pete he was, I still love Pete Seeger. He right? was he was there. And, yeah.
0: Uh, and even even one of the things that was genius about Pete is um even though he was politically active, like his act. He, he planned on his activity largely like I'll go there play music and I'll raise awareness by playing music right. so when they want to clean up the Hudson River he's like I'll just hold a music festival at the Hudson River and, and we won't be real preachy about how dirty the Hudson River is but we'll mention the Hudson River needs to be brought, uh, cleaned up we'll bring everybody down listen to some music for a couple days then we'll clean up the river mm-hmm. and so and he he did a great job of bringing attention to whatever it was and, and he's actually kind of funny he was a co- or at least he was accused of being a communist and the thing that was kind of funny he, was he probably was yeah he <laughs> probably, he probably he was say, my
1: parents knew him <laughs> oh
0: did they All right. and but one of the things that was funny about him, he's like, no, I'm just really, really conservative. You guys want to go back to like – I think it we'll just say he said like 1850s. I want to break us back to the 1650s. So he's like, no, I'm just actually really, really conservative and want to go back to living in a village. Yeah, so- when
1: Woody Guthrie first came to New York, my – Uncle met met him on the train. He brought him to the house. and My parents bought him a guitar. <laughs>
0: so, so even 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 your own family, like not just are you Forrest Gump, but even when you go back to your family, you hanging out with Woody Guthrie, yeah, you're meeting the, Pete Seeger and all these individuals. It's pretty, yeah. yeah. Th- and those are well, amazing they used to characters.
1: invite. Well, they were involved in all the radical groups. I don't know if you ever knew Paul Robeson. Uh, I don't know that. No. He's a guy that was incredible. He's an all American football player, a phenomenal singer, uh, and cr- had an incredible voice. He was an attorney. Uh, I mean, he he did he did the whole thing, and uh, he was also a Marxist communist. Wow! And he came to my parents' house, and then they also knew that the Hollywood Ten. You've heard of the Hollywood Ten? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, two of the Hollywood Ten: Dalton Tr- Dalton Trumbo. He wrote the he did the movie Spartacus. Uh huh. He was one of the Hollywood Ten, and another guy named Alva Bessie used to come to my parents' house. Uh, I got to meet, got to meet all of them. Pretty fascinating. So, and that's when you were little, uh, meeting them when you were little. Or yeah, I was pretty pretty little. Although I, I met I met Alva Bessie when I was older because he moved to California. I okay. met him in California. Okay. But but when Dalton Trumbo came, there, I was probably ten years old, something like that.
0: Okay. So you didn't get heavily immersed in the Marxism, like despite all the little bump ins with these people. It wasn't. And and that when you started getting oh, to no, the,
1: it was I was involved. Okay. Involved. And then and after I. Uh, Anyway, I'm listening to this this uh David McReynolds do his preaching about uh the draft, how the the draft was uh involuntary servitude. And so I I listened to him and I said, "Okay, yeah, I I agree with this guy." I took my draft card out of my my wallet and I looked at it and walked outside and just lit a match to it and <laughs> threw it in the trash can. And and, and, and the, let it...
0: were you big bushy beard at this point or no? You, no. Oh, yeah.
1: Uh
0: because I was I I was, I googled him last well, night. I had a I had a
1: big beard when I traveled around okay. Europe. Okay. But uh and
0: is that that photo you were referring yeah, that to? Was, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I
1: was in Jerusalem at that time. Okay. And actually the the there were two girls on the boat that met this guy on their last trip to Israel and they said, Oh look up his name was Zulu, Zalman Karpelis. And look up Zulu when you get to Jerusalem. So I looked Looked him up and I walk in his house and his big living room is completely empty except for a wooden sawhorse with a saddle on it. <laughs> and uh, he was a cowboy. He was a Israeli cowboy. Okay. Well, legitimate. He went to Cornell. And, and, and so
0: there's a is a Jewish cowboy, one who rides a
1: uh, rocking a horse. horse, or a yeah. horse? <laughs> <laughs> no, he he had, he, had st- he went to Texas A and M, and he went to Cornell and studied uh, cattle raising and all that and okay. and, uh, and he was a uh, Israeli war hero he took out arab machine gun nests and i mean yeah, i saw newspaper clippings of his exploits and because of what he was able to do they let him have land cuz they didn't have any land for cattle cuz it's too land is too valuable for crops mm-hmm. so they gave him Kind of desert land that nothing would really grow on for running cattle. They just, they, <laughs> they, go,
0: go ahead and feed your cattle yeah. out in the desert.
1: Yeah. And that, that's, and that's what he did. He was very successful.
0: Oh, wow. At it. Fascinating. And, and, and so you burn your draft card. Do you have a date that you did that? I, I'm, so well, part then, of my, sorry, sorry. I always, I need timeline So my, the way my head works is I have, I need to hang in on dates. That, that so was it.
1: probably 1966. Okay. Or, so yeah, 66, yeah, early 66.
0: And, and so when you when you get a draft card, is that like is that like f- f- to potentially be drafted or is this on no, August 3rd you that, need that, check in?
1: At that time, whenever anyone was 18 years old, they had to go down and register for the draft. Mm-hmm. And I didn't it, it was no problem to me cuz uh, back then if you were a student, you got a student deferment, and if you had any physical problems, you'd get a a 4F so that you they couldn't they couldn't draft you if you had a 4F designation, and I had a 4F designation. I had a some serious arthritic condition, and uh, I had no question I wasn't going to be drafted, okay. but I didn't want to – the draft was involuntary servitude, and I didn't want to be – sign up for being a servant. Mm-hmm. So I just threw it away in the trash, and and then – uh, about a month later, I think, e Easter the following month, uh, they, they did a b- big draft card turn-in in Central Park in New York. Mm-hmm. And so the organizer is a man named Bruce Stancius, which I've met since then a number of times. He was organizing it. He's a Cornell student, actually. And I wrote him a letter. I said, look, Bruce, I don't have my draft card to give you, but just you can add my name to your list because I've already burned mine. And uh, so – then Bruce passed that list along to David Harris, who was the student body president at Stanford. And David was really big on against the draft. And he started an organization right about that time called The Resistance. And he felt that... That's the flyer I saw. It was The Resistance. You, yeah. yeah, you're going with the guy to the, speak at The Resistance yeah. type of thing. Okay. So the, uh, and The Resistance was trying to recruit students uh to not use their deferment because most of the kids that were ending up in the war were poor kids mm-hmm. uh they couldn't get out of the draft somehow so they end up going going to the war and there's a you know a, a large number of black and hispanic students or young people and and uh so we didn't want to take advantage of that and uh and he figured David's thought was when once when white middle class students start going to jail for this war, we're bringing it home to the to the country, mm-hmm. and people start rising up against the war, which they did actually. Yeah, as I, and I saying- thought, we were we were one of the more effective movements in the country to, for ending the war in, in Vietnam. But oh, yeah, I, I I came back. You know, I'd gotten all my. Uh, background while I was there with that guy from Indonesia. And uh, then everything that he said, as the war continued on, I was just affirmed in my position. Mm I said, this is not – the whole Gulf of Tonkian was a whole bogus deal, which uh, um, Secretary of uh, Defense and Secretary of State McNamara wrote in his book. It was. It was all bogus. So er everything I believed about the war – Actually, turned out to be accurate, mm-hmm. and,
0: uh, but they they what did they just said was crazy conspiracy theories at the time. Like yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Well, we've heard that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, nothing nothing has changed. Yeah, and uh, so David came, came down to L.A. to recruit me to work with them in Southern California and i hit it off with him and he, he brought a whole group of kids with him actually from stanford about five other men from stanford and uh he wanted he, he was trying to recruit me but i wanted to go to university of toronto for graduate school and i did so you I, had finished ucla at this point well i was finishing okay this was a few months before graduation yeah i left with a flourish there i we walked out of our graduation down to Wilshire Boulevard. There was a big draft center there, and and, and picketed the day the day of graduation <laughs> in our cap and gowns. We were on on Wilshire Boulevard picketing the draft draft board down there. And uh, what what did you want to study at the University of Toronto? Well, I my th- senior thesis at UCLA was based on uh, Marshall McLuhan's book. Did you, yeah. you remember I'm not, him? I'm not familiar. It was with a that. very very popular. Author at the time, he wrote a book, The Media is the Message. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally know that. And, yeah. you know, his, his thesis was – and one of the problems with the Vietnam War is we we're seeing a war on television for the first time. And television is much more involving than film because mm-hmm. it's made up of pixels. And you've got you've to put all the pixels together so your mind is very involved with what you're, what you're seeing. And, it's, and uh, because she's are so much more involved in it, the response to it is so much greater. And so I did a whole, my whole senior thesis on that, and I wanted to spend time with McLuhan. And there was a teacher at the University of uh, uh, California State College in Northridge mm-hmm. named Edmund Carpenter, okay. who was a collaborator. Uh, for
0: those of you at home, Karate Kid. The fight scenes were filmed at Cal State Northridge. So that's, that's for people watching at home.
1: Yeah, well, Edmund Carpenter had worked with McLuhan, and I discussed what I was doing with him while I was writing my thesis. And he says, Oh, you got to go to Toronto and, and meet with him. So I, I, after I graduated UCLA, I drove off to Toronto, and I got there, and I find out he's not at Toronto. He's got a fellowship at Fordham University in New York. Uh, <laughs> so I. I just,
0: is, is Fordham Catholic? My, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: And anyway, so I go down to Fordham and and I get there and the I decide, well, I'm gonna go over to Columbia and I walk on a campus, the Columbia campus for the first time, and here are three of the guys that came with David Harris from Stanford sitting at the entrance to Columbia signing people up to turn their draft cards in at Columbia. And they all they recognized me and I recognized them and you know, oh great, you know, and so I s- spent time sitting with them at the table and they said, We got a, a speaking gig at Fordham, why don't you go down there and do it for us oh wow so I go to I go to Fordham and I never made a speech in my life <laughs> and I was a terrible speaker the only the only D I ever got in college was making a speech was, the speech class was it, was it was horrible but because I had done something it, that gave me a credibility or mm-hmm. a, a, some kind of moral standing to make the speech and people were just they loved it.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> they, how, how, how long did you talk? Was it like a 10-minute speech, five minutes? Like? Pretty
1: short, maybe uh, maybe 10 or 15, 20 okay. minutes. Uh-huh. And I had heard David Harris by this time a number of times, so I, I kind of had the took rap his, down. Yeah, took his bill. And by the, by the time I got doing I, I I gave hundreds and hundreds of speeches after that. Uh-huh. And I had heard David so many times. I would take him. I'd bring him down to Southern California and take him all over. I could have repeated his speech <laughs> verbatim, uh-huh. and he, t- he told me I did a better job than he did. <laughs> so, and I, don't, then, I don't think so. But, <laughs> and, and the, but in that
0: process, were, were you arrested? Is that right? Like in, uh, as you were starting to...
1: Well, no, I, w- I wasn't arrested, but I had... Well, I had to go to... They They decided I was a pretty high-profile person at the time, and uh, people wrote letters to my draft board said they. Make him, he's a conscientious objector. It's obvious, you know, he, everything he's written, everything he said, you know, make him a. But the draft board was upset with me, so they decided they'd draft me. So I went to the induction center to get drafted, and uh, but I decided, you know, I wasn't going to go in and I was going to take as many people out with me as I could. <laughs> so every room I'd go into, I'd start making a speech. And at the end of the day, I took about a dozen people out with me that they decided not to. Not to step forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, that got even madder. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so th- then they arrested me for refusing induction. And it was a, a pretty high-profile case. And because it was a, a big case, uh, this attorney, he, was a, he had been a federal prosecutor, a Harvard Law School grad, uh, does, offered to take my case for free. Uh, because he was trying to build a law practice that specialized in defending draft resistors. Okay. And I was all over the news, so he decided, okay, he's going he's gonna to use me to build his law practice, uh-huh. and uh, he did. He had a huge law practice, <laughs> and uh, he, he did very, very well. And this was all taking place in, like, L.A. County? Yes, yeah, that... in L.A. County, okay. in, in the L.A. County f- Courthouse. Mm-hmm. And so uh, – in the first trial, we go to the first trial, and I wasn't gonna.
0: And at this point, we can, like, kind of, sorry to interrupt you, but, like, strands of, like, was spiritual, like, in being part of the hippie movement, the draft movement, was there any, like, age of Aquarius type stuff going on,
1: or was it, were you just more. Oh, big, oh like, for, big. You for, for you
0: personally? For you personally? Yeah,
1: I was, I was into it up. Okay. Like, like, I knew, like, all the bands in Los Angeles, the famous bands in, mm-hmm. in those days. I don't know, Steppenwolf, do you remember yeah, them? Or nitty gritty dirt band, mm-hmm. uh, the Doors, they were all friends because they they came to use our draft, re- <laughs> draft <laughs> resistance services, and then we did some fundraising concerts. And the Doors had a movie that Morrison yeah did that we premiered at one of our fundraisers. Okay, okay. and uh, all these people the,
0: that the. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm kind of curious like in your biography. So, uh, so so when when was so like if you went to North Africa, you
1: were not at that point. Were were, were you like into
0: the you weren't in, into the hippie scene? Not, the Aquarius, all no, that not at
1: all. Stuff? North Africa, I started smoking dope. Okay, and uh, I got involved in that, and then in uh, my brother, I got off the the train. I I took the train back from the East Coast to L.A. and my brother picked me up, and. Uh, I saw him immediately like, oh, no. Because my brother started using marijuana back then. He started smuggling it from Mexico. And so he was – he had quite a little business going. And uh, that's what funded our draft resistance group for for a couple of years. And I had probably the top quality weed on the West Coast in – some of my best friends in San Francisco were the main Haight Ashbury. They, were, they, were, they lived on Haight Street and they were the main Haight Ashbury dealers. And when they'd have these big giant concerts in the Golden Gate Park, they'd provide all the marijuana. The Grateful Dead used to hang out at their house <laughs> and they'd have, they'd sit there, they'd have whole teams of people rolling joints and putting them in shopping bags. And the dead would put them on the back of their, their flatbed truck. Go down Hay Street throwing out handfuls of weed. (laughs) I wonder if everybody loved them. (laughs) But the weed they smoked themselves was mine.
0: (laughs) Uh Yeah, see, that's insane. All those connections of the people that you're just kind of like milling about in these circles as you start to get connected into the hippie scene and all that stuff. Yeah, well,
1: David, after I met him, married Joan Baez. Okay. And she was a lot of young people here. I'll, I'll, I'll start telling some of these stories.
0: Who's Joan Baez? I they, have,
1: they have no idea.
0: Did, did she date Bob Dylan for a while? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Was yeah. that? And that... she's
1: done concerts with him recently. In last, oh really? In the last few years, okay. they've been to Europe doing concerts. And in Europe, they're legend, legends beyond legends. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And they, you know, they sold out conferences all over Europe, uh, concerts all over Europe. Yeah, because I remember
0: I, I kind of remember watching a, a Bob Dylan documentary, and there was at least a period there where he was Joan Baez, and sometimes in my head I will collapse. It may not be fair to them, but Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell. Sometimes I'll I'll collapse no, those no, two. Joni was very different. Okay, uh, t- t- totally different. Okay, yeah, no, they're, they're really neat. I loved,
1: I loved her work because
0: I, I uh, Joni's. Yeah. Oh yeah, Joni's. I I love Joni Mitchell's music. Um, because a, a story I would heard, I wasn't sure if it was true, but I I assume it's now true that you smoked weed with uh, Joan Baez in a treehouse.
1: Yeah. Is that no. True?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is that true? Is that true? Not, not in my treehouse. <laughs> not in a tree house, okay. no, I, I was going to visit David and Joan when I was down at Big Sur. Mm-hmm. And on my way up to visit them, I went to the beach in Carmel near their house. They lived in Carmel Valley at that time. And I'm sitting on a beach, and here's this little thing of tinfoil. Little, looked like a clump of tinfoil on the beach. I pick it up, and it's got hashish inside of it. So I brought it up with me to <laughs> their right. house, and I gave it to David, and he gave it to Joan. That's, okay. That's okay. the first time I think she ever got stolen. She was pretty straight. Oh, wow. Actually, okay. when, I, when I knew her. Interesting.
0: Yeah, because I I had heard that it was in a treehouse, so that's not... No, I no, know. I
1: lived in a treehouse for four years.
0: <laughs> you did? Okay. What, yeah. what, year,
1: what what years were you living in a treehouse? Probably started in 67. Okay. Because I, I, I started working with the draft resistance, and I did... I was in charge of Southern California, Arizona... New Mexico and southern Colorado and southern, southern Nevada. Okay. And uh, where is this tree that house was this treehouse my that? area. Well, that, that, I, after doing that for a couple of years, I, David asked me to come up to Palo Alto because he was going to jail. And Joan had just had their first son, Gabriel. Oh, wow. And he asked me if I'd move up there and, and help her out while he was in jail.
0: And how long how long was his sentence going to be? It was like a year, a, six months.
1: It was, a, I think, a five year sentence, but he, he actually only served just over two. Okay, that's still quite a. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 and it and, was uh, it was a it was a, it, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so I moved up there, and they they were given the man that started Memorex. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, the tapes. Yeah, Memoirs of tapes. I yeah, His name for is, those of you at home, tapes is how we used to. Well, this was even eight track. Memorex, that may have been eight track prior yeah, yeah. to full well, fl- no, they, they, they,
1: they graduated to cassettes. Okay, okay, but uh, it was the the tape itself was oh. what they what they made. Donald Eldridge is the guy that started that company, and he owned uh, eight hundred acres of land in the hills above Palo Alto. In, and at
0: that uh, time, Palo Alto was probably like pretty sparse. Like now, it's all built up,
1: right? It was pretty big then. Too. Was it then? Okay. Yeah, that's where okay. Stan- Stanford was. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big town. Anyway, uh, Don was trying to develop that land. It's incredibly beautiful land. It's up in the mountains, and you can see the entire Bay Area. And he wanted to build not many houses, maybe a fifteen or twenty, on the eight hundred acres. I mean, that's not mm-hmm. too much. Too much. Uh, yeah, no, that's. Fort, forty acres there. a person, still pretty yeah. nice. So, but the city wouldn't give him a permit at all. They just fought him. Was it, it a basic- political? Was it political reasons? No, or just- no, they just they're they're environmentalists. Okay, they think they own everything. Uh-huh. You, you, there's no private property anymore. Uh- <laughs> so, uh, they basically confiscated his land. Oh wow! And it got him upset. So he gave his land to the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence, which was at what Joan and her her mentor iris sand started and so they had this 800 acres so david said just go up move on that <laughs> and they asked me to teach there so i was i had a school bus at the time and i had a friend who's a well-known artist in the la area that painted the school bus it was just some just beautiful work of art and i parked it up there at the 800 acres and i was looking for a spot to build a house and i wanted to I wanted to either build a tree house or like a hobbit hole. Mm -hmm. And the hobbit hole was going to be on the side of this hill. It overlooked the Pacific ocean. It was just a beautiful spot. And, uh, you know, I had it all, all planned out. And then I was hiking one day and there's this old abandoned deck with two by six flooring on it. And then I looked up from the deck and here's this huge Oak tree with three big limbs that, that, Spread out in a way you could build right on top of them. I said, ah, that's a treehouse.
0: All right. So what's what is your psyche at this point? That like, you, when you think of someone like, I want to live in a hobbit hole. I want to live in a treehouse. Like, <laughs> what, what I, like, all like, 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 what, like, like, you know, you're part of, I guess, like, at least like socially, some sort of revolutionary type movement and thinking and stuff like that. So there's got to be some sort of like philosophy, some sort of like yeah, well, thing that's driving. I, I,
1: I had a friend at the time, uh, his name is Bob Zaw, lives in L. A. and he. He did all our publications for the draft resistance. So all our leaflets, everything, he did those. And because he was really good at that, all the rock palaces, the Shrine Auditorium, and a couple other places down there in L.A. would hire him to do posters for their their events. And that, that was uh, that was a whole art form back in those days of big psychedelic posters mm-hmm. for for uh, Concerts and stuff, and Bob would he was also a draft resistor, and he'd kind of follow around with me a lot and or drive me to different speeches and he'd say Bill, you're always talking about an alternative way of life you know that and but i don't see it why aren't you doing something <laughs> like that, I, go, ah, I think he's got something here, <laughs> so we wanted to show we wanted to model mm-hmm. what we were talking what yeah. we were talking about how how people can live in peace without. Having police forces, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> nothing new under the sun, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. and uh, how we can cooperate and work together and, and live so in harmony with the environment. Yeah, and, oh yeah, uh-huh. li- li- living in harmony—that was a very big thing. In fact, I used to—I, I was in a couple of movies at that time, and one of them was a, a documentary called "The Resistor," and I was the resistor. <laughs> and are, uh, are any of these worth uh, watching? Because I, I, well, do... the, the Resistor might be, and okay. they, they show it on. TV every once in a while. Okay, it's been shown a lot of times, and the the man that made it was a UCLA film student, and then and then he's gone on to become a professor at uh, University of Southern California in film. Attila Demokos. Okay. And I actually, he just tried to get me to go to Monte Carlo a couple of years ago because they did a a sixties. Got what they called it, kind of a '60s renewal thing, and they showed a bunch of films from the '60s, and my resistor film was shown <laughs> at this Mono, Monte Carlo Film Festival. Was
0: it Was like an hour and a half movie?
1: Uh, no, that was a, it. Was a short. Okay. It was, it was uh, half an hour. Okay. And you're the you're the main. It's just it's just about me. Okay. And the very last scene has me actually. The, the premiere was shown at the San Francisco. Uh, Art Center in, in Golden Gate Park. And it was paired, this is a San Francisco Film Festival, and it was paired with a, a feature film about a, a radical from San Francisco State University, a black radical. Mm-hmm. From San, and so they, it, it, the, the place was just packed with his friends and all these black radicals from San Francisco State, and they're watching my film. <laughs> and the very, the very last scene, I'm up in the mountains outside L.A., and I'm in a. There was a rock there that had a hole in it, and I dropped into the hole. And I pop up, and I'm playing a little wooden flute that I made. And I've got a feather coming out of my ha- hair, and I've got really long hair and a big beard then. And the people are booing. And and I'm there with a friend of mine. Do do you ever remember uh, uh, the book of lists? Uh uh-uh, uh No, at no. all. It was a, it was a it was a bestseller. For, okay. And. uh Irving Wallace, he's a, a famous author. Mm-hmm. And his daughter, she's also a, f- a famous author and actress. And his son, uh, David, David Wallace, he took the original family name, Walchinsky. Oh, and wow. David came with me to the the premiere at the Francisco Film Festival. And these people are booing me. <laughs> and so we, we both had kind of capes on with hoods we put the hoods on over our heads and uh slunk out of the theater <laughs> escaped and uh, and if you had a show ID you would have been a Wachinski anyway not yeah. a wallace so you would have been a uh, one undercover so and then yeah.
0: so it was around this time that you so
1: uh. oh yeah so so bob is telling us so oh, we got to we got to practice what we're preaching mm-hmm. so i moved up there to the the mountains i built this treehouse and I, saw, the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence was running it, but they were, not all of them, some, some of them were pretty good guys, very consistent, but some of them were Marxists that were just using nonviolence as a tactic. Yeah. But Gandhian nonviolence was called Satyagraha, which means truth force in Hindi, and it's, it's a very uh, defined and developed method of influencing like Gandhi did got mm-hmm. got Britain out of India by using truth. Mm-hmm. And people would get beat up and and that but it, it can move mountains. Yeah. And uh so I was teaching up at the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence and I'd starting gardens out in the back there and I'd be working in the gardens quite a bit and all the other students that were at the other kid guys classes would all come out to the gardens and spend time with me (laughs) because it was more fun out there. And the stuff we were talking to was more compelling. Hmm. And the fact that I was, I had a five year sentence uh, and it was actually on hold because I'll, I'll get there in a second. But, uh, so the guys from the Institute for the study of nonviolence didn't like me working up there. So they just left and went down. They had some houses in East Palo Alto and they moved their whole operation down there, and I was left with all 800, <laughs> 800 acres. And I called my friends. I had friends from Arizona. We had a commune there and friends from all over. And they all came, and we ended up having about 150 people oh, wow. living on this 800 acres. And my treehouse wasn't actually on that land. It was on some property right across the street from that land, right across uh, Page Mill Road, which was the main road up into the mountains And uh, So that, that was uh, that's when everything else started happening
0: okay, and you all right, so you you mentioned having a five year sentence um yeah, so the guy
1: the they they gave me a five year sentence the judge did i mean he 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 hated me okay so and then I got
0: is that related to what I was
1: reading earlier is this, yeah okay. probably okay and and then, oh yeah, this is where it is okay, so then uh and I'm not a Christian at all, yeah. But um, uh, I, got in, I got in this movie. And so this is Judge Curtis that hates Yeah. Me. Okay. I got in this movie. This uh, Antonioni, Michelangelo Antonioni, was doing a movie, Zabriskie Point. And it was a big deal in, in L.A. because he's a famous director. And he was in Los Angeles, first time ever. He'd done a lot of movies that were kind of legendary in Italy. They were great movies, actually. And then he did Blow Up in the, in the U.K., and then he comes to America to do Zabriskie Point, which is the lowest point in Death Valley, actually. Okay. That's where the name came from. And this, his uh, assistant director comes to one of our draft resistance meetings. And uh, she likes me. She's talking to me asking asks me all kinds of questions. And then she invites me to come down to MGM Studios cause MGM was – Sponsoring the movie, to come down to MGM's studios and meet Antonioni. So, okay, great. So, uh, you know, a few, a few weeks later, I I come down there, I, and I I kind of had a ritual. I'd go to the beach and before sunset and smoke a joint and watch the sun go down. And so I'm there in my jeans, barefoot, at the studio, and here's a long line of kids, and I recognize a lot of them from UCLA and USC. They're film students that want to get a chance to meet Antonioni. <laughs> and they're all dressed to the teeth. I mean, just, you know, ties and all their best uh-huh. their best clothes. And I'm barefoot in jeans and a T-shirt. And uh, I'm standing. I just go to the back of the line. I'm standing there. And this lady comes up to me and goes, Bill, yeah, what are you doing back here? Come on. And she grabs me and walks me right into the office. And Antonioni is on, on his way to the democratic convention in chicago and he's got suitcases under both 68 yeah okay he's got suitcases under both arms and he's going through the thing and and she goes mclangelo mclangelo this is the guy i'm telling you about and he looks at me he says good i said what he says he wants you to be in a movie i said you don't understand i don't i can't act i'm not an actor he (laughs) goes oh perfect he's going perfecto perfecto i go oh no I said, I said ah. she says, "Don't worry about it. You'll get a job that doesn't require any talking, uh-huh. and you'll get paid very well." I'm going, ah. okay. So, so, when he gets back from Chicago, he's going to call you. So he comes back a few weeks later, and uh, he calls me in to, for screen test. And they were hiring the lead, and the lead in the film had two roommates, and one of them had a lot of talking parts, and the other one had no talking parts. And that's what they that were going to give me. Uh-huh. And so we go to the film test. And he liked me so much, he switched roles. Oh, wow. He had a professional actor do the His talking so- part thing, but he liked me better than him, so he switched our roles. And you now,
0: any, any, any awards for it, any, any performance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said no, it was terrible. I, I
1: made a lot of money. It supported, <laughs> it supported our commune for okay. two years. Oh, wow. I got paid, whether I showed up or not, I had to be on call. So if they told me I was on call, I'd get like $600 just for being on call. And that, with you, if you're on call, when past nine o'clock, you're free to do whatever you want. You you can take mm-hmm. off. If they wanted you to actually show up, they would call you, and then it'd be a minimum of a thousand dollars. Oh wow! In those days, that was really good that's money. That's huge money. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, huge really. Of money. Yeah. <laughs> and is
0: that daily? Like the thousand? Yeah. Is that a day? Day. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah. So five thousand dollars a a week, if potentially if you had yeah. gone in all five days, that's a yeah. huge amount of money. Yeah. So, now,
1: yes. I found out later, I, I didn't. No, Harrison Ford was in the movie. I had no, I, no idea. Yeah. A young Harrison, I love, Ford. I love, I love, I love Harrison Ford. <laughs> All right, and uh, and so was it, you
0: mentioned Judge Curtis. He had a five year deferred, uh, deferred. Oh sentence. yeah. So, so
1: <laughs> and is this is this so? The... Anyway, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the movie, and the movie's almost done, but not quite. And so Antonio heard that I'm going going to jail. And he's freaked out. No, no, no! You can't go to jail because <laughs> he already shot. He had a very tight budget back in those days. it Was huge, it, but it was probably twice what he's ever spent on, on making a movie. And it was, it was like was maybe it, three was million. Was it his worst movie that he made? Yeah, I, th- I thought so. <laughs> Some people think it's phenomenal. Okay, there's one guy that's written a book on it, and I'm still in touch with him. All he, he's writing me all the time. I'm I'm his hero. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> he's coming. He's come to the United States twice just to visit me oh, wow. and interview me and film me in the interviews. Mm-hmm. He, he and. There's an Antonioni Study Center in Rome, and he's got a, a permanent room there for archiving wow. Antonioni stuff. That's crazy. And so, uh, so, so he thinks it's great. I thought I thought it was just horrific. Okay, I, okay. I couldn't believe it. But uh, so I, I got lost there. Yeah,
0: but we're, we're yeah discussing Judge Curtis. your deferred oh, right. sentence. Right?
1: Yeah. So so the the my my. Antonioni, uh MGM agreed to file a lawsuit to file an appeal in my case to keep me out of jail long enough to finish the movie. Okay. That, was, right. that was the deal. <laughs> and they got a law clerk, some young lady, to file the appeal, and she made uh, an appeal – that has actually been used by Operation Rescue successfully oh, really? to yeah. get Operation Rescue people out of
0: jail. That's crazy. For those of you who don't know, Operation Rescue was huge in the 80s. Yeah, it kind of m- t- maybe in out in the early 90s. 90s yeah. yeah, and they, uh, face the, the FACE Act, I think, by, signed by Clinton, that basically created the – uh, was it 100 yards or 100-foot yeah. perimeter around abortion clinics? It kind of killed much of the abortion movement, as well as Randall Terry kind of went through some bumpy stuff yeah, through, oh, the, yeah. through the mid-90s and all that sort yeah, of jazz. Yeah, well, I
1: was real involved with him at, okay. one, at one point because uh, that was our big – Thing. My wife and I started uh, the third crisis, crisis pregnancy center in the country. Oh, wow. In, uh, was that out in California? That, yeah, okay. in California. Yeah, the, right. the first one was in Baltimore, started by Barbara Hammond, and then another one in uh, Corning, New York. Oh, wow. That's kind of an odd place, yeah. Corning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Get your glassware
1: and, uh, right. and a pregnancy test. So. And, and, then, and then ours in LA, and actually, uh, not in LA, in, in the Bay Area, in, in Palo Alto. And then there was another one that started right at the same time across the bay in Hayward. And so we were the third and fourth centers in the United States, and okay. now there's over 5,000. Okay. So, and they're, so, all,
0: they're all connected, rooted in that?
1: No, they, they weren't. They, the, the original crisis pregnancy centers started in a meeting in Billy Graham's house in north carolina ah, i guess
0: fascinating i guess it's one of those things uh, later on when history is written and you reflect back you realize some of the roads you're across but yeah it's kind of fascinating oh billy graham was there and these people were there and all right so uh
1: judge curtis five-year and deferred so, yeah so so anyway then they decided they're going to re-prosecute me because it was a big case and uh i had i had gotten arrested at a after we did a uh, demonstration in Whittier, California, which was Richard Nixon's hometown. Okay, and we we had five military deserters come to us there, and we uh, had a sanctuary for them in a Quaker church in Whittier, and we we chained them to the pulpit, <laughs> and we chained ourselves to them, and Antonioni came to watch this thing. He'd never been to. Uh, want A real demonstration. Here's one of his actors there, and he comes with his whole film crew. They all have oh, 35 millimeter cameras, and uh, the police come or the FBI come to arrest these guys. And they get these big bolt cutters. You know, they're going to cut off the chains. And Antonioni goes to a t- goes to tackle them, <laughs> and all the MGM executives were there, and they're freaking out. They, and they're grabbing them. and They pick them up and they carry them out of the building. It was it was pretty crazy. And on the way, after that took place, we were going out to the desert where we kind of had a little camp, campground. And we got stopped by the police to inspect our car. And they found all this assortment of drugs there. And they arrested us. And they, and they had newspapers claimed it was the largest drug bust in Whittier history. Oh, wow. Okay. It wasn't. Okay. Nearly, but it – so that's, it makes a uh, good headline It makes yeah. a good
0: headline And and if you want to If you And one of the things you need to do If you really want to bring someone down You need to demonize them So if you have a draft dodger Communist You know Yeah Whatever no, else yeah, you I, guys, was, do was, I was perfect Yeah yeah it,
1: it was And we were in my van That had Is registered to me And we had 12 Other people in the van And A lot of them Came from very wealthy families In the LA area And so they got Big time lawyers To defend them And, and all that And uh, And then I was going to take the fall for all of it since it was my car and they they couldn't uh tie any of the drugs to anybody except to the car Mm -hmm. so uh, that was that was me and i was i was going to take the fall and uh so i'm living out in arizona by this time in the Chiricahua mountains and an incredible place in uh well you you peggy hitchcock does that ring a bell no it doesn't no uh Timothy Leary and and Baba Ramdas did all their LSD experiments on the Hitchcock Estates. Oh, really? In New York. Okay. All right. And they're, they're Harvard professors at the mm-hmm. time. And Peggy gave them the her land there, and then she ended up marrying a guy named Walter Bort, who had the Oman Press as a cult publishing company. Oh wow, that's crazy. And they moved to to Tucson, and. Uh, so I was visiting the prison where my friends were in jail for the draft where David was in jail and a lot of other friends and were they in state or federal prisons? Yeah, they federal. Okay. And so I went to, after we got done with our visit, we go down to the Cherokee mountains. And we're in a camp and stop at the ranger station. And he said, Oh, are you with those guys from paradise? And what those guys meant hippies. Okay. And, and I said, no, but tell me, tell me about where they are. And, they give me instructions how to get to their house and i go it's in paradise california i go to i go there and there's this beautiful little ranch house and there's not a soul there and it's got a, a sign on the door said if you're hungry go just walk in and help yourself to the food in the kitchen there's lots of food if you're you're you need to get cleaned up take a bath and if if you're tired uh get some sleep and if you need any other help call this number and they have, Number it says treat this house as it were your own in the brotherhood of Jesus Christ. Huh? <laughs> they weren't Christians at all. Oh, right. really? They were. They <laughs> no. were. Okay. So the next morning, I go to town. There's no no cell phones back in those days. <laughs> I call them up, and the lady that owns it's Peggy Hitchcock, and she invites me over to their house. And I'm up there, and I tell her I'm looking for a place to stay out here. And I told her what I was involved in, which she's all she's a classic liberal, mm-hmm. and. uh she offered to give me her ranch there as a retreat center, so it was it was pretty phenomenal.
0: I thought I thought they were going to be setting you up for an arrest or something like that. I no, was, I was no, well, for... no.
1: They actually, I was set up for an arrest because some undercover cops came there and uh, they were wandering around the property, saying they were looking for a, a cave there because there was a huge underground cave right there. But uh, they said they were cavers, but one of the guys that was living at the on the property with me. Turned him on to uh, marijuana. Uh, a ra- okay, and uh, so they did. They drew up uh, arrest warrants, and they came there one night with uh, a whole bus with a full booking outfit on it, uh, cameras and mm-hmm. lights and and everything, and uh, we we hear this. Uh, Loudspeaker out in the woods. Uh, we are the sheriffs of Cochise. You are surrounded. Put down your guns, and we're coming in. <laughs> Did you guys have any guns? No, had no <laughs> guns at all. And so we were, we were, we were all sitting in our living room. They come in, and they're they're just hostile, hostile, hostile. And we're oming, going Oh <laughs> and it was making them nervous, <laughs> you know, because they there was no place to put their their anger and their fear. Hmm. We're just sitting there, only yeah. peacefully, peacefully yeah. and they're going, "Stop that! Stop that!" I said, "Okay, if you take your guns out of the house, we'll stop it." They took their guns out of the house, and and we stopped it. And, uh, and then they started searching the house, and they found just a few joints. Uh, I don't know; they 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 missed all the the, all the of stuff. All, yeah, all the yeah. And uh, they were, and there were two girls who had. Male in that room with their names on it, so they could tie those two joints to these two girls. So they decided to arrest the girls. Oh, wow! But I asked them after they got after they calmed down, I said, Do you mind if we get our instruments out? And so we had some really good musicians there. We had a little band that we used to play in different towns around that area. And uh, they said, No, no, no. So we were playing music and they were really liking it. And at the very end, we got around them. They wanted to take pictures of us, group, group <laughs> photos. So they had their photographer taking pictures of the, the whole group. We put our arms around and we started singing, uh, "Made the long time sunshine upon you, all love surround you." It's, it's just kind of a hippie hymn. And uh, wow! All and, right. So, how did, right,
0: going towards your conversion? So you're in these hippie communes. You had this Brotherhood of Jesus, which is not Jesus at all. But then you're in. You're going into court. Oh
1: well, um, yeah. So I'm going. To, I'm going to the court. And that, my drug trial came up first. And I, we go to the court in Whittier and the, I'm living out in this, this commune and I get in my head that it was a totally illegal search and seizure. And I write all the details down on a 10 page letter. And the first five pages were my philosophy of life. And the second five. With do you the, still have that? The details. The, any of the details? I do, I do have somewhere. Uh-huh. And, uh. And yeah, it had a cover with the family of man. I don't know if you ever saw that big book. I don't think so. No, and it had all kind of pictures of of people from all over the world, different different races or people, and that was the cover of this whole thing. Okay, and uh, in it, I admit to having the drugs, but I and I I explain why I use drugs for consciousness expansion, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and but I I also tell the details. Of the arrests, it was totally totally illegal, and uh, so I I bring this ten page document to the courthouse, and all the other attorneys that are representing all these rich kids, saying, "Oh, don't give that to the judge." He says, "Now, if you're lucky, you'll get five years, and you'll be out in three or two and a half, and you're fine." You know, don't don't. He said. Then when I showed him this paper, they said. You're gonna get twenty at least. <laughs> it's all over for you. Uh-huh. I said, Look, no one's told the truth here. I've got to tell the truth. Uh-huh. So interesting. Uh, so I, I gave it to the judge and he took a recess and he read it. And he came back in after the recess, calls everyone in and he says, You know, I've reconsidered the age the, the evidence. I believe the officers have lied. Case wow. dismissed. Wow. Boom. <laughs> the all the the uh, attorneys, the, the prosecutors and all their witnesses, their faces just went white and they are mad and all my attorneys were just going, <laughs> oh they, <what? laughs> they, could, they couldn't believe it and all of us that were being prosecuted ran out in the hallway and just had a big pile right in the uh-huh. center of the hallway <laughs> and uh, that, that, so we go from that to Judge Curtis's thing and so I'm of uh, a few days before the trial, we go up to this Sycamore Canyon, which is a place just north of Malibu, actually. And we'd go hiking there all the time, and so and every everyone would get pretty stoned or take LSD or something, and go up in the mountains. And I'm up there in the mountains, and I get a vision for how to deal with Judge Curtis, and uh, it's just crystal clear what I what I need to do, and. Uh, so we get back from that, and a few days later, I go knock on Judge Curtis's door in the courthouse. <laughs> and I tell him, you know, Your Honor, uh, when I was in front of you the first time, I was talking about nonviolence, but I wasn't really nonviolent. I had a lot of anger and hostility in me, and I want to confess that to you and ask your forgiveness for it. And he goes, wow, Bill, you know, when you were first before me, I had two boys in Vietnam. And I wanted to make sure you did as much time in jail as they did in Vietnam. And then you could hear his mind just snap. Just I mean, literally, I could hear a snap. And he goes, wait, no, no, there's no counsel present. you got to get out of here. And he pushes me out the door. (laughs) And so I go home, and that night the prosecutor calls me up. He says, Bill, and I knew the prosecutor really well by now. We were actually good friends. And the prosecutor calls me up and says, Bill, all you have to do is go to the draft board, get your physical. You'll be 4F and we can forget this whole thing. Just do it. He didn't want to prosecute Mm -hmm. me. And I said, you know, I can't do that. He says, yeah, I was afraid of that. (laughs) So the next day we're going to court and on the way into court, he gives me a brief. He just hands it to me. And I don't even look at it. I just fold it up and put it in my pocket. And actually I'm wearing like pajama pants that I had made myself and a psychedelic shirt that had a fabric that had like 70 colors on it <laughs> and
0: uh yeah like a tie-dye then. and that's yeah
1: and and so that's my outfit going in the, going into the courthouse for my trial mm-hmm. and my my lawyer comes and he's my co-counselor because he's supposed to be there to advise me and he is wearing all white hmm. it's, it's it's all gone to his head this whole uh uh-huh. and stuff and he had taken mescaline i think some kind of psychedelic oh, drug wow. and he's got a white coat white pants uh uh fluorescent blue shirt and it, by now he's got he's got hair down on his shoulders it, and uh he's just there to consult with me and I I'd, I'd ask him a question he's I said Michael what do you feel about this we're we're picking a jury he goes do what you feel <laughs> <laughs> and I said what do you think about this do what you think that was that was his total huh. total co-counseling with me
0: and was he a legit lawyer or oh is, yeah big time oh, lawyer okay, okay. Yeah, and he's a
1: harvard law oh, school okay, grad yeah, yeah. he was the top prosecutor in los angeles Mm -hmm. a big time lawyer and he had all these big bands were his clients yeah yeah i I made him he had one of the largest practices in the united states Hmm. draft practices he was known nationally i mean he'd get he'd go to law conferences and talk on what he was doing he talked about my case personally Hmm. and he actually talked about my drug case Even more, because that was more amazing (laughs) to him than the draft case. And And was uh,
0: Jesus at all in any of these?
1: What? What did Jesus— No, well, the the message I got up on the mountains was uh, the scripture. If you're being persecuted for my namesake, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'm going to give you the—I'm going to put the words in your mouth. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was thinking. That was my whole thing. And so I wasn't going to worry about a thing. And when it came time, when the jury was chosen, I was going to stand up in the front of the jury and just open my mouth and let God speak. That was my strategy for the case. Mm-hmm. And I told that to Michael, and he was like, <laughs> and I had never, I mean, I went to Pepperdine, so I I heard Scripture in Pepperdine, but I never heard that Scripture. I never read it. I was I didn't believe in that, but I, that's, that just. And did you were you associating it all with Jesus, or is it just kind of. Oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, I knew it was Scripture, and that's uh-huh. what, I knew it was Jesus saying that. Okay. Don't worry about what you're going to say. He's talking to his disciples. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, and where's uh, the, the line so, here? Uh, oh, well, so that's what that's the that's how I open this. OK. My biography is because. Uh, the judge says, oh, do you have a motion for me? And I go, huh? And then I remember what the guy gave me. And I pull it out of my pocket. And I say, here, your honor. Uh, and I gave uh, it to him. He says, we're going to take a recess while I consider your motion. Wow. And he comes back in and he says, well, I've considered your motion. Uh, I agree with it, case dismissed, boom. <laughs> <laughs> and people are going crazy. This, this is the, actually the third time in a month that I, was, I had cases where I was going to do time, no question. I was guilty, and I should have gone to jail. And this is the third time that I was completely exonerated. Hmm. And people are going, oh, they're screaming, he's a miracle worker. <laughs> and, and God is talking to my head, telling him it was me. Hmm. i mean, it was like clear as a bell, Tell mm-hmm. him it was me. Uh, God, there was most of these people. I mean, they would not have understood that at all. Yeah, none of them were Christians. Most of them communists, and they thought I was crazy anyway. Yeah, in a lot of ways, cause of some of the things I was doing. But this would have been beyond the pale. I yeah, mean, uh, it's one thing being crazy drug guy, but it's another thing being a Christian. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, gonna... <laughs> that is that is way beyond the pale. Yeah, yeah. The minute it turns to Jesus, then <laughs> yeah. everything is on court. Yeah. The drugs,
0: okay, the mescaline, no big deal, but yeah.
1: So, but I, it was so clear in my mind that God did this for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was completely Jesus. And then it came back. It was like three or four years later uh, when I got saved. That whole scene came back in my mm-hmm. my head, and I I saw this. God has been with me this entire time. God's delivered me from all these things I should have really been suffering suffering for.
0: Yeah, and who was uh, so between. Uh, you know, the court cases and then becoming a Christian who is preaching the gospel to you? Where were you hearing the gospel well,
1: at that time? I went, I lived up in the mountains in the treehouse and you do you know who Mario Murillo is. I don't know. No, he's, he's going strong right now. He's, he's preaching at a revival in Sacramento right now. Huh. A friend of mine, Mario Murillo. Yeah. Look, look him up. Okay. He is a Pentecostal preacher and he, he had a, a, a thing in Berkeley that he was preaching at the time. Okay. And a bunch of my friends, had a band called the, uh, the Living Rock Band or something like that. Okay. And they played all over California. They're really good, super good musicians. And they were Mar- Mario Murillo's band at his revival meetings in Berkeley. And it was, what was the name of that? And so were you... Were anyway, so, so I... I uh, my friends invited me to this Pentecostal Church of God in Palo Alto, and uh, they invited they invited me there. And there's a, a few months earlier, a bunch of hippies came in there, and they had gone up to Chico. There was a big revival in Chico back in the late '60s, mm-hmm. in the early, or very early '70s, and they'd gotten saved there. And they were like, you know, I, that we had clean hippies and dirty hippies, and I considered myself a clean hippie. <laughs> okay, you know, I, I. I I was clean. My clothes were clean, you know. I, I showered regularly, you know, and and uh, I was self-supporting. I didn't need virtually anything. I, could, mm-hmm. I think my hey, budget. You're getting a thousand dollars a day my, doing movies. You're well, a big timer. My, my budget was fourteen dollars a month, <laughs> and because that we we had gardens where we grew most of our own food, and uh, we actually had a I had a job. There's a health food restaurant in Los Altos, very high end place. And uh, I was the manager that and the, the main cook. And I just make recipes up out of my head, hmm. health food stuff. And uh, people kept coming in, buying stuff. And the owner, Asa, he's a, a black guy, and he would just leave a bowl on the counter. And there was always money in it. And if we need anything, take what we want. That's, oh, wow. That was his thing. Was, okay. There was no payroll. Page. So I, I might have taken maybe $20 a month. That was... Hmm. Cause that's all I need. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and so
0: the so and in, in, from the war and the, and just starting to hang out with Christians and them inviting you like were they like born again Jesus people sort of yeah Christians oh, okay. yeah
1: they they were well the band guys were really good I really liked them I love okay. their I love their music and uh, and did that. you know them outside of the Christian context? Yeah, uh, some of them had lived up there. Okay, in, in the mountains with us. Anyway, that but these guys went up the Chico come back down, and they were told by the pastor there, well, when you go back to Palo Alto, find a full gospel church. So you get back to Palo Alto, you look in the phone book, uh, and the full gospel churches, I think this Pentecostal church was listed under there, Bethel Temple. Okay. And it was right down the street from uh, uh, so one of the booming churches in all over the country is... Uh, Ray Stedman, do you remember? Yeah, Ray Stedman? yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, it was right down the street from his church. Okay, and uh, which was really booming, but this is a tiny Pentecostal church, might have had twenty people in it. Okay, the whole church, and the pastor was B.J. Carnes from Arkansas, and his wife Bunny, <laughs> and uh, these kids, these guys walk in the back of the church, and Billy sees them and stands up and starts walking back, and Bunny grabs him, his wife grabs him, she says, Billy, what are you going to do? I'm gonna kick those filthy hippies out of here," she says. "Billy, that's the answer to our prayers because they've been praying for young people, mm-hmm. and here are these young people come, but they're thinking Stanford students because they're in Palo Alto. They're not thinking dirty hippies, yeah. And uh, so she, Billy, listened to his wife, and then they started inviting other people there. And within a month, there's probably 200 hippies there. That's fascinating. And then people from the Pentecostal Church of God movement were coming from all over the country. To see what Billy did, Billy was taking credit. For, <laughs> he was taking credit for all this. He was taking credit yeah. for what Bunny did. Yeah. He wanted to kick you guys out. And
0: one of the things that's interesting, I, I can't remember his last name, Ron. Um, and he, I think it was Love Song with the name of a band oh, yeah. that he yeah, was. They, Ron yeah. Turner. Ron Turner's is a guy's name who I met in Whitefish, probably five years ago, six years well, ago. Well, the
1: other guy, other guy from uh, Love Song came there.
0: Yeah, but the thing that was interesting with Ron was he, yeah, the band Love Song, Uh I think it was the band that became Love Song when they were, they were an unbelieving band prior to that, I believe. Um, I think it was, this is it, but Ron was a youth minister at a church. But anyway, all these hippies started to come because this rock band came to him, asked questions. So he started bringing them to church. Then they ended up having their youth group went from like 13 people to 200 people, and he lost his youth ministry job because all the hippies (laughs) were coming. And it's really fascinating to think like, that the church that there are people who function like that you know what i mean like cuz in our heads you like on oh we want the gospel to go to everybody and then here at least there was a time where the wrong people were showing up and all right let's get them out of the church so it's pretty pretty fascinating that that's actually happening so
1: that's how Calvary Chapel started. Yeah, and uh, you were mentioning the other guy, Lonnie Frisbee. Ronnie Frisbee. He, yeah, he used to come to our church. All oh, did the time. Really? he? Okay, he was, he was
0: leading a Bible study there. Okay, did, so you were you friends with Ron, Lonnie no, at all? I or couldn't just... say friends, but okay. I knew. I knew. Okay, Lonnie. yeah. Because yeah. he would, was he about the same age, give or take? Maybe a tiny bit older. Okay, but... okay, yeah. Because he, because uh, I remember, like when I was into like you know going to that one way site, and uh, they made a movie on Lonnie. Oh yeah, and uh, and it, yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, amazing. A bunch of
1: my friends were in that movie. Oh, were they yeah,
0: real good friends? Okay, yeah, and it was really fascinating just to. Yeah, because you had that, uh, you know, in the late '60s, that early '70s, and it seemed to be a genuine move of God oh, yeah. on many people being coming into the kingdom, and and like you know, in more of my revivalistic Baptist days, you see all those wa- uh, ocean baptisms and stuff like that. And, oh, I did.
1: I loved ocean <laughs> bat- when I was when I was pastoring. I when it was time for baptisms, that would be my first choice. Yeah, and because you go down there and there's a beach full of people, and they watch you. They the guys stand on the beach that are. Getting baptized, and they'll share their testimony, and then we'll take them out in the ocean, and I'll just have a good swimmer right behind me to make, make sure no <laughs> make one, sure one got you swept didn't lose, away, lose anybody.
0: And uh, yeah, and there's they would even tell stories where like Lonnie would preach, and there seemed to be like he would just be like you know call people to repentance on the uh, on in the water or the on the beach there, and just people would be coming into the water, and he obviously you know went a little sideways in the late 70s or in the oh, 80s yeah. and stuff like that. So whatever all what all happened there, but. It is. And you also realize, like, I'm assuming he's preaching the gospel in his early context without being hypercritical, um, what the Lord uses to draw people in. And there are just so many. Yeah, you just see this move where you have all these people coming into the kingdom. And it's fascinating just to, like, years later, you, you still see some of the fruit of it um, some good, some bad. Uh, especially, you know, I was kind of. Uh, Grew up in very sentimental music, which I think maybe you know, Father, I adore you. You you know what I mean? So, so, so and like, I still like that, but it's still, Uh, but, but (laughs) it was that sort of music has had influenced us in many ways. Um, And so, you you see that shift in Christianity. And so, here you are at a Pentecostal church in Palo Alto, California. And then
1: over time, because actually, the the man that was preaching when I was when I was there, the not I got saved was. Part of the Edwin Hawkins singers, you remember them? I do not. I do oh, not. Happy Day!
0: Oh yeah, told you know, no. Oh, Happy Day! Yeah. yeah,
1: he was one of the one of the guys in the Edwin Hawkins singers. Try, his name will come to my mind. Okay. Anyway, uh, and he was in a uh, a plaid suit, kind of uh, green, yellow, and with stripes. i mean, just, and, you
0: know, <laughs> and who's not other, my style. Who's the other guy? That's um, uh, why does the Devil have all the good music? What's well, that guy's name? What is does Um, he he's kind of a anyway. And he he did a any um street legal. Uh, yeah, you'd have to you would know the name once you reckon. Uh, anyway, I can't think of his name right now.
1: Uh, Larry Norman. Well, Larry, yeah, he was Love Song. Yeah. Oh, was he part he of was love, song? love Song? Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay, I didn't realize he was. He part was of... the main
1: Love Song guy. But uh, that, there's another one, Randy Stonehill.
0: Okay. Yeah, Randy Stonehill. Yeah, he came,
1: he came to our church, and Larry Norman came to our church. Okay. And and because we were big in the Pentecostal circles, I had uh, Nicky Cruz came oh. to our church. I mean, we have people coming up from all over the countries. <laughs>
0: <It> <laughs> so, was great. uh, we'll, we'll speed up a little bit because I know you have to go somewhere, but like, when, uh, so what is your transition out of kind of Pentecostalism, Jesus movement, and then did, uh, RJ Rush Jr., did you, did you like,
1: literally spend time with Rush Dooney? Just... Oh, I spent a lot of time. Okay. There. Rush Dooney stayed at our house for a week at a time.
0: Okay, because I remember um, maybe three months ago I was watching uh, – it may have been from, like, on 2020, some ABC news show where it was like oh. – I was I Googled Rush Dooney, and, and I'm like, oh, there's Bill Garraway <laughs> with this Rush Dooney interview. And uh, and so in, in my head, it's just the a Bill fascinating Mo- – Bill Moyer's show. Oh, yeah, Bill Moyer. Yeah. That's what it is, yeah. So it's this fascinating – trajectory from hippie drugs rev- radical revolutionary stuff kind of jesus movementy pentecostal next thing you know you're a full tilt reconstructionist well, R- R- and- russian
1: really liked a lot of the pentecostal guys i was friends with because mm-hmm. uh, they a lot of the reform people that he was working with wouldn't do he'd teach stuff that required response and they wouldn't do anything mm. and but we would we'd hear something that was true and We just go out and, and start do whatever <laughs> whatever he was asking us to do or yeah. telling us we were required by God to do. What, what and we year, do it. What year did you meet Rushdeni? Probably in the late seventies because okay. he he was the expert witness in the McElhaney case. McElhaney was a pastor in San Francisco that fired his or- organist because he was homosexual and he refused to stop practicing homosexuality. Uh huh. And so Rush Shuny was the expert witness in that case.
0: What made Rush Shuny an expert? Just like biblical law? Yeah, just like, biblical, okay. biblical
1: thought. And uh, his – who was the, the law firm? The Rutherford Institute? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, oh, they wow. defended him. Okay. Who's, who's the main guy there? I the,
0: cannot figure um, – Whitehead? Somewhere? Yeah, John, John Whitehead. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so John got Rush Juni, and I went uh, – they were trying to raise some money. And so Rush Shuny, John Whitehead, and uh, McElhaney were all there. And I got to know McElhaney well after that, but, uh, so they were all there. I was really impressed with them. I was really impressed with Rush phenomenally. Mm-hmm. And then I would
0: do, but at this point where you at all reformed, were you still kind of Pentecostal.
1: Well, I, you know, I was always leaning performed reformed and I met this guy. I was going to a Bible study with uh, a bunch of evangelicals in Menlo park, California. And it was, uh, Stanford student that was going there, a young guy, you know, and I was also very young at the time, and and we became good friends. He said, "Oh, you got to meet my friend Jay," and uh, Jay was the Young Life area director at the time, and uh, Jay Grimstead, and he's the guy that started that uh, International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. Okay, Jay's the guy that brought all those people together and got them to sign it. And so he was good friends with a lot Did of people. Did
0: that produce Chicago,
1: uh, the Chicago Statement? Is that yeah, what they the produced? Stri- yeah, that's, okay. his, that's his thing. Okay. And Jay was very close friends with R.C. Sproul. Mm-hmm. And so I got to know R.C. R.C. Sproul is everybody's entry drug into Reformed theology. You well, know, he, he, he <laughs> preached at our church a number mm-hmm. of times. And I got to meet him on a number of other occasions. And, yeah, he was, he was fast. He was great. And I, everything that he was teaching, I, I related to. And Jay... The reason he started the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, he was a graduate of Fuller Seminary. And he goes to Fuller to see some professors, his old, old friends there, and he sees a, a sign on the, a post there, FAGS, Fuller Association of Gay Students. Oh, wow. And he, he, he goes, What? How can this be? And he asked some other people, Is this real? They said, Yeah, it's real. And he flipped out, and that's why he started. The International uh, Council on Biblical Analysis. And,
0: and what, what what's crazy is like I guess you realize the seventies were the seventies and you had the, the, the madness you, you, and you know, you, you had the radical sexual revolutionary free love and even you know disco and all that sort of stuff. But it's kind of fascinating you think of uh McIlvaney, was that the name? Yeah. Um like that case of you don't think at least in my head, I don't think of a guy being let go at a church, playing the piano, or playing the organ for being a homosexual, being let go, that creating a court case, or Fuller Seminary in the 70s, uh-huh. especially and like and I guess you take that radical leftist sort of thing, you put fags, let's let's take their word, put it in their face, and turn it into something other, and so it's just, and even when I'm in Southern California, I will, I used to use Fuller Seminary, uh, their library a lot, but they actually, it's kind of funny, because they want all this social justice stuff, and uh, poor the poor the poor the poor. But they shut down their library because the poor were stealing books out of their library <laughs> and selling them. And so, so they they had a they, they locked it out from non students now, or at least the last few years I was there. Um, but every time I'd go on that campus, there was always some sort of underlying humanism that was being promoted. Like on some poster, there was something contra biblical law, contra what the Bible teaches, and it's, it's amazing. Jay,
1: Jay went. He lived in La Brie for a while, so mm-hmm. he, he oh, knew. Okay. he knew Francis very well. And when they that uh, is, Jay still alive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to get him to come up here. Yeah.
0: Dumb up here. We'd love to interview because even like friendship, because I would like to do something labrie ish up here. Uh-huh. And the other thing I've realized is is how Francis Schaeffer's fingerprints are on a generation of men. Oh, yeah. And uh, from, I, I got to spend some time with Oz Guinness. I lived in Washington, yeah. D.C. Uh-huh. for a little bit. And uh, I don't know Nancy Percy, but just her books. There's just so many people where you just realize, oh, yeah. Then I came across Francis Schaeffer. Then I came across Francis Schaeffer. And, and in your, have you ever come across Jerem Bars? Would you have? He was a professor of mine at Covenant Seminary.
1: Yeah, no, I, I know I know the name. I okay, don't, I don't, but I don't, I don't know him personally.
0: He uh he spent a lot of time with. Uh, he was a Marxist in England, and then he somehow ended up at Labrie. And he was hiding a microphone in uh, Schaefer's. Um, he had like a pot on his lectern, and he, uh-huh. so he could record the record his talks and send him back to the Marxists in England, <laughs> and because Schaefer didn't originally want his lectures recorded, and All so right. he, got, he got him to record it. And stuff like that. So anyway, this gentleman spent some time at Labrie with Schaefer, and he, um, I didn't want to interrupt your story. no, you, you yeah, pick- well,
1: he, and he, uh, when Francis went around the country with that whatever happened to the human race thing, mm-hmm. I got to meet him there, and then his wife uh, did a talk for us for our crisis pregnancy center, and uh, because I'm Jewish, she really loved it. She, she wrote a book called Christianity is Jewish, which is really uh, yeah, an excellent yeah. book. And uh so she likes spending time with us and she we hosted our house a number of times. She's an amazing lady. I really, mm-hmm. really enjoyed being with her. And uh, and then I helped Jay. I just volunteered to serve him whatever way I could because they did that international What's Jay's con- last name? Grimstead. Okay. And he, he did that International Council on Biblical Inherency and then he started a, a series of conferences. The first one was the Congress on the Bible, and uh, one of Reagan's top guys, Seaver Coop. What? No, what, no, not no. C. He was. Uh, why this? Uh, his name will pop my mind okay, here too. It anyway. I'm, he he was the chairman of that Congress on the Bible. Okay. And then then they started.
0: Because the, uh, one of the stories I heard is that. Uh, Reagan was willing to hire a bunch of evangelicals. He kind of had like, and but when they looked around, there weren't there weren't like a bunch of well educated people that he, he could place in the whatever position. And C. Everett Coop, I guess, was uh yeah, oh, yeah. an evangelical. Yeah, and, he was fantastic. Yeah, and he was one of the guys that he was able to plug basically yeah. plug and play into a position. So he's yeah, the, no, uh, he was the surgeon general. Is that what he was? Or yeah, surgeon yeah,
1: general? Yeah, did did a great job. He's a great great guy. And Jay had incredible contacts from all this stuff. Congress from the Bible was a thing he put together and. They had three conferences: uh, one in Dallas, one in Washington D.C., and I forget where the other one was. Maybe Colorado, and uh, where they did. And Francis, the way they worded this, the uh, word word of the Chicago statement is a series of affirmations and denials. Because mm-hmm. he says you can't be wishy-washy. Like, because a lot of the denominations were saying that they believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, but they didn't really. Yeah. And, and the way that they didn't define it properly, so and that's when all the Baptist schools uh, had to change, get straight with mm-hmm. the people who were giving the money and stuff, because. Uh, they called them out on yeah. that because they weren't.
0: Can you guys sign off on this or not? And yeah. then when the answer is no, then it's like okay, you lose money. And if the answer is yes, okay, we can uh-huh. we can back it.
1: And so, well, they they went and we, they challenged every one of them, every one of those seminaries to debates, mm-hmm. and very few people would debate them. I mean, they had the ultimate debaters. I mean, you know, Schaefer and sprawl and, and Rush Duny, you know They
0: know. had the, yeah, well armed individuals. Yeah, and but, so oh, well, he put together.
1: Uh, uh, the foundation stone that everyone had to agree with to be part of the group. And he had people that were Reformed, Reconstructionists like Rushduny, and then uh, there was a guy from Dallas Theolo- Theological Seminary, uh, Geisler, Norm Geisler. Oh, Norm Geisler. Oh, was he from Dallas? Okay. Yeah, and and I mean, these guys didn't agree on almost anything. Yeah. And they had a debate together that was just a phenomenal on the watch. In, in, at the meetings. They mm-hmm. were just incredible. Yeah, and then
0: uh, is that what produced uh, – Geisler had that book that he edited called An Errancy. Would that yeah. have been a fruit of what they were – That was part of that, Okay, yeah. yeah. Pretty. So in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, you start to hang out a little bit with Rush Dooney, and that was kind of your migration kind of out of –
1: Reform. Yeah, I, I was – I mean, Reformed Faith sounded all true to me. It was um, no no – i'd hear it and go, oh of course yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's basically it. i i was totally different i was
0: i can't i kind of can't and kicking and screaming because i get i was converted in ni- 93 go off to college uh, a couple months later and in college my sister was in a bible study that she heard about election so she calls me up and she's like they said there's election and that can't be here right. <laughs> and so uh we're like and it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year where i was like okay let's study this issue and we looked at ephesians and romans and i went home and we had a malone um, college uh library i just go check out books and just started uh, cranking through material and at the end of it i was like yeah we're reformed and it was actually JI packer's um introduction yeah, I, to john O'S was
1: my friend Jay is good friends with Jay Packer, okay. and I heard him many times. So yeah, he, he his,
0: his uh, introduction to John Owen's "The Death of Death and the Death of Christ was a thing that yeah, kind that of drew of, me fully. That was one of my favorite books. Yeah, so. uh, fu- fully drew me into the Reformed faith, because I, I, I shouldn't say fully, but at that point I was like, this is the God I'm looking for, the sovereign, because I would go to these pop evangelical meetings, <laughs> and it was just like, you know, and, and I'm all for Roman, uh, Revelation 3 being true, Jesus stands at the door, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, but it was just, he was that was presented in a way that was so pathetic, uh, much more than, you know in Revelation like he's opening doors he's closing doors and yet he also has this humility where he is knocking at the door so there's a lot going on there but it, I just felt like the presentation of who Jesus was was that he's not mighty to save he's not a you know he's not this sovereign king that I, when I'd read about Isaiah 6 you'd be like okay here's a guy who's high and lifted up so what I was getting um, but on the flip side uh you know I was just uh, steeped in American democracy, and I thought choice was the uh, the <laughs> highest thing you could possibly have and so uh, I free became choice a, yeah, free choice when I became a believer, uh, it took a little while to get there, but it was one of those things, like after three or four months, whatever it was that summer, a little bit longer than that of wrestling through the issue, it was kind of like this seems to be what the scriptures are teaching, and then from there it was kind of Presbyterians I came across uh, Dooney, bonson, North, and these guys in the late 90s um, and they were the, they were the group. For me, who are not embarrassed by the Old Testament. And that was the other thing that was kind of tied in. I hated right off the bat when I got into Christianity how Christians like would immediately it it say, oh, well, that's the Old Testament. So, like, bears came down and mauled the teens. Oh, that's a, that's a, the Old Testament. The Old Testament God does that. And so, you kind of had this kind of Gnosticism um, or uh, Manichaeanism where the God of the Old Testament's this way, the God of the New mm-hmm. Testament's this way. And I, I didn't like that. And it was kind of uh, Rush Dooney, Bonson, and these men that kind of put forward a vision of, no. he's yeah, a senior. They were all part different. of
1: that, Congress on the Bible, mm-hmm. North particularly. And uh, I got to know him there. Was, he was amazing. But,
0: yeah, I've heard nothing about what a genius he is. Uh, yeah. uh, Jeff Myers, I believe it was, who was a pastor of mine yeah, in St. Him. Louis, and he yeah. talked about he was down in Tyler with those guys for a while, and he'd say if you ask uh, North a question, he'd start writing on a chalkboard. Uh, you know, 45 minutes later, he'd give you footnotes on where he's getting all this information. It's
1: Congress on the Bible. The most amazing extemporaneous talk I ever heard was North. Someone asked him a question, something out of Leviticus, and uh, he started to respond to that question. And these are all the top theologians in the United States sitting there in that room. And within a few minutes, not a person was talking. You could hear a pin drop. And he just went on and expounded for about 40 minutes. And at the end of it, he got a standing ovation. Never seen anything (laughs) like that.
0: As that's that's amazing, that's scary Gary. Yes, yeah, scary Gary. Scary yeah. Gary blew people away.
1: <laughs> he blew people away. And I said, I did a thing called the. Uh, uh, what do we call it? It was, it, it was a, a seminar about every other month. Uh, I can't believe it. the first. The first one we we got was Gene Antonio. You wrote the first book about AIDS. Oh, okay. In uh, he sp- spoke at a church, and I had Rush Juni and North speak at one of those. And uh, then we would host – I'd had a team of guys from our church that would help me host the seminars. They'd, they'd, and what church are you at at this point? It was uh, one of the shepherding churches. Okay. In, in, uh, Did
0: that have anything to do with uh, Mumford down – Yeah, in? Okay. Bob, Bob oh.
1: was our kind of main pastor. Okay, okay. And uh, So, so – and It was in Campbell in, in uh, the Bay Area.
0: Okay, I remember Rush Dooney quoting Mumford once, and Mumford said something to the effect of, uh, "When I preached about apostasy a lot, I got a lot of apostasy." So
1: I remember <laughs> I remember Ru-
0: Rush Dooney quoting. You kind of, yeah. Rush Dooney liked Bob. Yeah, actually.
1: yeah. Uh huh. I, yeah. was, I was on Bob's board for many years. Okay. Also, okay. About, I think I was on his board for about eight years. I really like Bob. Amazing teacher. Okay. Actually, it wasn't Rush Dooney, but. One of the theologians I knew said that Bob was one of the best preachers in the United States. Hmm. So, is he
0: still alive or is he passed? He's, no, he's still alive. Okay. Yeah, because after I heard Russian reference him, I was like, okay, I got to Google this guy. And I remember seeing an older talk, uh, but I didn't see anything recent. Oh, I,
1: I probably still have dozens of, of his tapes. Okay, Yeah,
0: yeah. fascinating. And so um, over time, you started getting the kind of reconstructionist. Uh, you're on oh, yeah, uh, well, Bill I, Moya. Or is that what it is Bill Moya yeah,
1: show? Bill Moya, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and so, and then gradually now you're up here in Moscow, Idaho, kind of,
1: yeah, know. with my f- reconstructionist friend, Doug,
0: <laughs> <laughs> with the reconstructionist friend. So you've kind of run the gamut from uh, over the 50 years. Yeah, of I like, up-
1: uh, I like Doug. One of the reasons we really started going up here is, the they, they wouldn't really apply a lot of what they were mm-hmm. learning to their personal lives. Yeah. Uh, and it, if it wasn't applied, it was worthless. Yeah. And, and I- yeah, I guess that's, we'll we'll wrap up with it. All
0: right. So if you, you give yeah, a little exhortation, a whole other
1: uh, launching area. That...
0: Yeah, but what would be? Yeah, that, but that would be the thing. What would be kind of an element of like a takeaway of like go and do this? Because you said like coming across uh, Rush Dooney, it was let's go do this. You know, what I mean, and as hippies, you guys were willing to go in the streets. You were obviously politically active and everything else. So taking activity from what you were learning was eminently practical. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes, Christians aren't that. So you know, I do open air preaching. I want to do a lot of evangelism. Um, so I don't care what Roman is, whether you think it's evangelism, whether you think it's some other practical thing of the family, what would be something along the lines of like, if you were to exhort us to be, Hey, go and do these things. Well, mm-hmm. we're
1: living epistles known and read of all men. That's our lives. Mm-hmm. And if we're not practicing what we're preaching, we're, we're not, we're not living epistles. We're dead epistles. What mm-hmm. where'd be a main gap that you think that like, well, if, I think the family is a big thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Rush and Gary are related, yeah, but they don't communicate with uh-huh. each other. Yeah, uh-huh. that was you know that's hard to hard to deal with. It's sad, mm-hmm. very very sad. Because mm-hmm. I like both of them a lot. Yeah, and uh, yeah, no, I thought both of them were great. But th- when they couldn't communicate, that's a a bad testimony. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you, you should be able to see, uh, you know, a lot of them. I mean, I don't know. Rush's son Mark is doing a good job now. I Really appreciate what he's doing, but uh, I don't know them well enough to know the insides of their life. But that that was always a stumbling block of not getting along, of being being relational.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that definitely uh, seems seem to be a, a strand of uh, kind of what, whether it was Bonson. Uh, I don't know any. I don't know much about it, but it has the appearance of. You know, he's bounced around from seminary to seminary, had a tough time getting along with people, and some of that's theological, and once you make, you know, Mm -hmm. plant certain theological flags, then you're going to get excommunicated from certain circles and stuff like that but i think that's kind of uh, in general at least real or perceived i would say maybe like a problem within the reconstructionist theonomist camp is it seems to be have a tendency to be divisive you know what i mean And when tyler being one of the the tyler experiment imploding the way it did and everything else um that seems to be kind of some of the roots you know what i mean um and, and so i guess there is that that element of fighting for the bond of peace amidst fighting for truth because mm-hmm. oftentimes i mean if you read north like if it's all polemic, you know, I mean, high, high uh, polemics um, and and it's in many ways it's great and it's and, and it's an easy read, it's a really good read, he's bright, he's footnoted um, but if if you're immersed in that, you can't help but to start to interact with other people like I'm in college reading this stuff, I just wanted to throw punches left and uh-huh. right which I don't think is the fruit of the spirit is throwing punches left and right. Um, even if you want to be a person of, uh, of truth, there has to be, you know, beauty, goodness, love, joy, peace, patience, kind of those sorts of things intertwined. So,
1: I think the the most important part of any ministry I've had has been my family mm-hmm. uh, God's raised up a bunch of great kids and grandkids and and seeing the fruit in their lives that that's been the biggest blessing to me personally mm-hmm. I know it was for my wife and uh, also in what what I've left in the different churches i've been involved in the churches i pastored the the fruit of healthy strong families has been by far the best thing yeah that we've done all right
0: so focus a little focus on your family as they would say here at cross politic baptize your children all that sort of jazz <laughs> i don't remember what i don't remember what knox's tagline is and he's not here he's not in the captain's chair uh leaving it that is uh, bill garaway uh, google him and go check out what's the what's that point movie that you said was awful Zubrisky Point. <laughs> Zabriskie Point. Go check out Zabriskie Point. And the I'm not resistor. recommending it. He's not that. recommending it. And fact, uh, there's, yeah. some,
1: there's some scenes in there you definitely don't want to Okay, so yeah, so you, get, you maybe got, get an edit. Gotta... edit, for,
0: edit for, start with uh, The Resistor then. Forget Zubrisky's point. Go with The Resistor. And uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully his story, which I have uh, right here, uh, will get finished and published and printed. Are you yeah. close to being
1: finished with it? Uh, I'm hoping it'll be done next Next uh, fall. Okay. I uh, think fall I'm gonna, of twenty twenty two. Yeah, okay. I want to. I want to give it as a Christmas gift to my kids, and I think, uh, i uh no promises from Canon, but my my daughter is my uh, okay. agent. So okay. I, She's got a good end there. Okay, so. yeah. So
0: we'll make the pitch to the canon as well. So it's a fascinating story. It's a great story. And we have a great 50-year history of kind of what's going on. So uh, Seek the Lord. This is the first episode of Campus Preacher Live. I think we'll stay at Campus Preacher Live. We'll see what happens. Uh, we'll go from there. So thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you. Okay. Thanks.